everybody. This is Eric Nam and welcome back to another special episode of I Think You're Dope with me, Eric Nam. Now, uh, today we have a very, very, how do I say this? A great conversation um, ready for you guys. And it is with an incredible, incredible human being. His name is Dr. Jim Young Kim. Now, you may have seen his name in the news here and there uh, because he's very newsworthy. He's done a lot of incredible things in his lifetime, and he's held some incredibly important positions. Um, for example, President Barack Obama nominated him to be the president of the World Bank, um, and he was there until 2019. He also was named 100 Most Influential People in the World, according to Time. He has received the MacArthur Genius Fellowship and was recognized as one of America's 25 Best Leaders by U.S. News and World Report. Now, that's just like some of the accolades, but he's also he was also co-founder of an organization called Partners in Health. And you may have heard of them. They are a nonprofit medical organization and they do incredible work all around the world and they serve the poorest of the poor and they fight deadly diseases. So there's actually a documentary that I actually really want to encourage you guys to see. It's on Netflix. It's it's a quick, easy watch and it'll leave you feeling very, I felt very encouraged and good and like kind of warm inside. Um, but Partners Health, they started by pretty much going to Haiti and fighting drug-resistant tuberculosis. They fought diseases all across the world. They fought HIV AIDS in Africa. And this is all within this time period where people said it couldn't be done, where people said they shouldn't do it. Um, But they saved so many lives in meaningful, meaningful ways. So I'd highly encourage you to watch this if you are at all inspired um, from this conversation, or if you even want to watch it before you get into this podcast, you know a little bit more about Dr. Jim Kim. So again, it's called Bending the Arc. It's available on Netflix. It's a great documentary. I highly recommend you watch it. Now, this conversation, this podcast, what do we talk about? We talk a little bit about everything. And I was very intimidated, but I try my best to to go over topics and talk about things that he had not already done on other podcasts and another conversations because I want this to be a different lens and a different conversation. Um, so if you're curious about, you know, more of the stuff that he grew up with and his background in, in finer detail, there are other great shows out there where he kind of dives into that very, very deeply. So just type his name in on whatever platform you're listening to, and I'm sure you'll be able to find some great conversations. So anyways, let's get into it. Today, we cover everything, COVID, education, global health, Korea, like a lot of things, a lot of great things. And I really hope this conversation leaves you with a lot of great feelings and feeling inspired. So without further ado, here's I Think You're Dope with me, Eric Nam, and the incredible Dr. Jim Yong Kim. Please enjoy. Oh, and don't forget, subscribe, rate, review, leave us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on. All right, really, back to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm actually, I can't believe I'm speaking to this man on a podcast. (laughs) It is an honor. It is a privilege to have him on the show. Everybody, please welcome Dr. Jim Young Kim. Yes. Dr. Kim, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me on your show. I love your show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And I, 
I'll be very honest. I'm very, uh, I'm a little nervous about doing this. This may be the most intimidating conversation <laughs> that I've ever done. And I've done, you know, a lot of people, Avengers, whoever, you may be the most nerve wracking. <laughs> Eric, the, the most intimidating thing I've ever done is sing karaoke with you <laughs> in Korea, okay? So compared to that, this is nothing. All right. Well, you know, I, I really <laughs> appreciate you taking time to be here. Um, we, before we just jump into it, I mean, I guess, where are you? What if, you know, how are you doing? So I'm in Westchester County, New York uh, with my family. Um, you know, uh, haven't been traveling much. I'm usually on the road a lot. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing a new business. I'm trying to build uh, infrastructure, mm -hmm. energy, transport, water and waste, uh, information technology, digital infrastructure in developing countries. So it's not that different from what I was doing at the World Bank Group. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, uh, that usually requires travel. We have to go and um, you not, not only meet investors, but look at, look, uh, at the, the various possibilities for investment. And we haven't been doing that, but boy, we've been doing a lot. Uh, over Zoom. So yeah, it's okay. been amazing how much we've been able to get done. But the other thing I've been doing is I've been really involved in the COVID response um, right. in the United States, especially uh, different parts of the world uh, as well. But uh, been really focused on trying to do something about what has been just an absolutely disastrous response mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Well, thank you for doing what you do, first of all, because I think you are a leader, a thought leader, and a, a visionary in terms of responding and dealing with um, not only things such as COVID and viruses and infectious diseases, but also in helping the poorest of the poor and people who are most disenfranchised. So I'm really excited to dive into a lot of the work that you've been doing uh, recently that you look forward to doing in the future. But before that, I think for a lot of people who may not be familiar with who you are, I don't want to go down the entire resume because there's literally so many things that you have done, that you have achieved, that you have accomplished. Um, but, you know, just to kind of briefly give it to our listeners, Dr. Kim, I look at your life, your resume, your plethora of accomplishments, and I feel like it's safe to say that you're a man of incredible ambition, right? For most people, becoming a doctor you know, that in and of itself is an accomplishment and you do that for life. But the Dr. Kim method is become a doctor, an anthropologist, fight drug-resistant tuberculosis, HIV, in the poorest parts of the world, lead the world in global health policy, become the president of an Ivy League, <laughs> become the leader of the World Bank. Uh, and now you're doing global finance while combating COVID. So, like, how? How do you unpack this? It, how do you get that energy? Where did this all start from? Where does the ambition come from? Um, I'm, it's a huge question, but I think that's the only way to kind of kick this off. Well, uh, you know, I, I had a, a very wonderful parents. Uh, well, my mother is still alive. My father passed away. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, my father, I um, uh, give him a lot of credit because he was, he was a dentist, a very, very practical man. My mother was a philosopher. Uh, she studied, um, you know, I Tege, the, the great Korean uh, uh, Neo-Confucian philosopher Tege. Remember, everybody in Korea will know Tegero is named after uh, this man who was really a giant in, uh, in the history of Confucian thought. So my mother studied those guys, uh, you know, did her master's degree 
at um, a Union Theological Seminary in New York and studied with some of the great minds of the 1950s, Reinhold Niebuhr, mm -hmm. Paul Tillich. Um, and, and so uh, my mother was the person with big ideas, uh, mm -hmm. ideas about changing the world. I mean, she um, uh, was right there in New York City in the 50s when all these ideas about racial equality, you know, uh, you remember Martin Luther King, he did his greatest work in the early 1960s. And so then in the 50s, uh, that world was just roiling with ideas about racial equality, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, women's rights. And so she was right there. And so for a Korean woman, you know, who was born in 1933 and went mm -hmm. through the war, um, her exposure to the, mo the grandest, you know, most inspiring ideas uh, of that generation uh, was just something that that affected the entire family. And so, mm. you know, uh, my father was a dentist. He was a great dentist. He had this opportunity to come to the United States and study. He met my mother actually in the United States through oh. friends and they got married in the United States. My brother was born, older brother was born in the United States. And then they went back and my sister and I were born in Korea. But, you know, both of them uh, were were refugees they you know my father left north korea at the age of 19 and never returned so he still has you know he died uh in 1987 uh very young and had never had any uh contact with anyone in his immediate family after he oh, left wow. north korea so you know my mother um lost her mother during the war mm -hmm. and uh you know was on a boat and went to uh, jeju island to uh, escape uh, the the invasion uh, of the uh, from the north of uh, North Korean troops, so they had these lives, but um, uh, were able to come to the United States, see something completely different. My mother had such an amazing intellectual experience. My father learned dentistry, so uh, you know I, I think that it it comes from them. Mm. Just to have escaped uh, from my father to have escaped from North Korea and then gotten into dental school in 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 Seoul. For my mother to have lost her own mother. And then, you know, been in this uh, extraordinary intellectual environment in New York City. Uh, I think that sort of set the tone. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, um, uh, my brother and my sister are also uh, very accomplished. But, um, you know, so, so something happened with me in the sense that I, um, I always try to take on, uh, you know, the next challenge. And mm -hmm. every time I took on what I thought was, okay, this is what's going to occupy me for the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to do. I would jump into it. Uh, just put everything I had. And then once we started having success, I started thinking, okay, what's next? So I, I've, I've always just kept saying what's next. I, I, I never started off with uh, some grand plan, mm -hmm. an ambitious plan. I mean, I know a lot of people who do that and that's great. It works for them. You know, I want to be a senator. I want to be president of the United States. I want to be president of Korea. I want to you know, run a huge company. I never had that. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I started off with was, you know, I want to do something that's meaningful, um, that, that really you know, uh, uh, gets at some of the most important core issues. I, I remember watching Martin Luther King uh, speak on television. And I, my mother gave me his writings and said, this is an important man. You should pay mm -hmm. attention to him. And so, you know, having remembered that, that was my frame of reference. Mm. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, uh, although, you know, he didn't finish the project as he would have liked, um, uh, you know, he, he really just completely changed the world mm. in, in, uh, in very profound ways. And so I, I thought, that's cool. You know, uh, so look, I, I played football, I played basketball, I love sports. Yeah, you know, I played golf, I did all these things. 
but the thing that really uh, got me charged up was thinking that maybe I can do something uh, like Martin Luther King did, you know, mm. tackle just some fundamental issue of human fairness mm-hmm. and then and then take it forward. Now, you know, I, I've told this story a lot. It's a true story. Um, uh, after my first semester at Brown, uh, I came back and my father picked me up at the airport. And uh, as we were driving home, I mean, this was in Iowa, so we were on a country road. <laughs> and he, he asked me, he said, so what are you going to study? I said, you know, Dad, I'm going to study philosophy and political science. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I want to become a leader of a political movement. Mm. He literally pulled the car over to the side of the road. <laughs> right? Now, you know, back in those days, Eric, I didn't speak any Korean, uh, right? Uh-huh. But if, if I spoke Korean, he would have probably said, yeah, yeah, he's heck yeah. <laughs> or, you know, uh, what he said was, look, after you finish medical school, your residency, you can study anything you want, right? Mm-hmm. So, so get, get the skills. Because he would say things to us like, look, you, philosophy and political science, you think anyone is going to pay a Chinaman to listen to, mm-hmm. to what their thoughts are on philosophy and political science? And actually, you know, back in the 70s, he was kind of right. Yeah. I mean, I, it, was, it, it wasn't open to us. And the thought of going to Wall Street, going into finance, I mean, literally one generation uh, after mine, lots of people did it. But when I was there, it was like, oh, you got to be you got to be careful, man. You got to mm-hmm. you got to you got to get a degree that no one can take it away from you. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, a medical degree, law degree, something where you're a professional so that no one can take that away from you because they knew what it would was like yeah. to have people take that away from them. Right? So I've got this incredibly practical streak from my father. And then, you know, um, uh, the, the, you know, uh, uh, a, um, an appreciation, uh, a, re- a, re- a really um, a, a, a humility and an awe in the face of great ideas and great thinkers. And so I've always tried to, 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 uh, to, to, um, uh, kind of, uh, bring those two together in mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. And, and this is key. I did not start off thinking about a position. Mm-hmm. I didn't start off thinking about money. Mm-hmm. I just thought, what are the most important, interesting problems that I can tackle? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if I can make a difference, but I'm going to put everything I have into it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then my own personality is such that when we, when we would get to a point where we've, we, we won, right? Yeah. You know, after we won, I just kind of lost interest in the sense that, you know, now everyone else could jump in and do all the, the technical work and make right. sure that the whole thing went forward. But I felt like, okay, now that I know that I can do that, what about that? You mm-hmm. know, let, 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 let's, let's see what we can do with, with, with something even bigger. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, and, and then I've been fortunate, Eric. I just, things just <laughs> fall, have fallen into my lap. I mean, it's just, you know, I was so lucky. I, I, I applied for a, an MD PhD program uh, in in medical anthropology at Harvard, and in my year, nobody else applied. <laughs> so, so, so I got in, and and then you know after after that, you know I applied to the most difficult uh, uh, residency program to get into, and you know I they, because they liked the fact that we were doing so many things in developing countries, I got in. Mm. Right, so just. Lucky stroke after lucky stroke. Uh, one of the luckiest things that happened was my good buddy, uh, Dr. Jong-uk Lee, Lee Jong-uk, he was like the only other Korean doing any global health stuff, right? And, and he happened to become the head of the tuberculosis department at mm-hmm. WHO. 
And so he and I met, we became very, very good friends. And then I helped him run his campaign mm. to be director general of WHO. He had zero chance by everyone's account. He had zero chance of winning the election, but we just went crazy and did all these tricky things. <laughs> Not we didn't cheat. We didn't cheat, but he understood the system yeah. and we made the most out of the system. You know, there was only 32 countries voting. Haiti was one of them. And of course, the president of Haiti was our good friend. Right. Grenada, a country of Grenada was voting. And one of our good friends was uh, uh, the, a relative of the prime minister of Grenada. So we put all these things together and he became director general of the World Health Organization. Mm. So just lucky break after lucky break out of the blue, just totally out of the blue, uh, the head of the search committee of, uh, for Dartmouth College, where I was president, uh, happened to be a medical doctor, happened to come and see me speak and just put my name you know, in as a candidate. And you know, uh, the, um, the, the, um, I'm telling you how, how, uh, what, I wanna, what I'm trying to get across here is that <laughs> everything I've done is so improbable and so lucky. Right? So, so the guy who was the headhunter mm -hmm. for the president of Dartmouth, because the, the, the chair of the committee, a medical doctor from Boston, put my name in, he had to come talk to me. Yeah. So he interviewed me for about three hours. He's, he's still a very good friend, a wonderful man. And after the interview, he said, look, you have no chance. <laughs> right? I think you're an interesting guy, but you have no chance mm. of becoming president of Dartmouth. But, you know, I have got to go through the steps. And so I'll present you. Right? Mm -hmm. And so he presented me. And then just there was one guy there. Uh, who was on the committee, he was a banker at Morgan Stanley. And he's still a very, very close friend of mine. He, and he just said, no, no, I don't, don't throw him away. I want to meet him. Mm. I want to meet the guy. And they said, well, why? He, he's got none of the experience that you need to be president of university. And, and uh, Brad Evans, Brad said, he's competitive, right? Mm -hmm. He's got, he's got, a, he, he, he takes on big problems. He's yeah. competitive. And I think we need someone like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, after that, I just read everything I could find about Dartmouth mm -hmm. and found the most interesting things about its history, things that the, the, the search committee didn't know, mm. right? So um, I was able to say, look, this is what the history of this place is. And if you want me to do that, um, I will. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and so, so I got that job. And then from there, right, Tim Geithner, Secretary of the Treasury, is a Dartmouth graduate, <laughs> right? And so, and, and I had worked with the Clinton, the Clintons, both, uh, you know, President Clinton and, and Secretary Clinton. And, uh, be, you know, Secretary Clinton and Tim Geithner both knew me, put my name up to be president of the World Bank. Mm. Right? So all this to say, uh, all of the positions I was in, mm -hmm. totally accident, accidental. The thing that's constant is that I've kept trying to take on the biggest challenges that I, that I can possibly right. take on. And then, uh, uh, you know, what, if I'm successful, I go on to the next thing. Well, sir, to, to say that you've been overly <laughs> successful, you've outperformed, you are in every way imaginable. Um, but, you know, I, I think so much of that comes because there's so much effort, you know, to you. It's yes, you can say I'm lucky and it's a very, you know, and it's a very humbling way to say it. But. I, one thing that I'm, as I'm listening to you, I guess what I'm trying to say and ask is, as a singer, I get a lot of questions of like, how did you go from becoming a political science international studies grad to becoming a K-pop star that 
you know, has who was, who, who was rejected from joining the acapella groups who school, cannot get which, into the acapella groups. Blows me away. Okay. That Eric, that just blows me away. So how did that happen? And, and for me, it's always been, you know, I try to take everything I can. I loved music, so I would pursue it, but I always had a constant of trying everything that I could and trying to be prepared for everything. But I feel like you not one up, you like 10 up me in that and being incredible and, and being able to do all that. But the question, I guess, is going from so many different role to role to role. I mean, they are all generally around global health initiatives and for the betterment of others. But I feel like they could also be distinctly vastly different. Were you ever kind of scared or nervous or have a a sense of imposter syndrome as you step into these grand roles? No, all the time. I, you know, all the time. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, if I, I, I'm now at the point where if if I don't have butterflies in my stomach, you know, in, in, uh, tackling something important, I kind of feel like maybe it's not so important after all. Mm. So yeah, I've, I've always, um, and I think anyone who tells you, nah, you know, it, it doesn't bother me at all. I, you know, they're they're either lying or they don't understand what they're actually doing, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, the first time I was at a G20 leaders meeting or a G7 leaders meeting, and you're sitting there with President Obama and all the most powerful people in the world. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, whoa. But then, you know, I did it for seven years. Mm-hmm. So after the seventh year, um, you you kind of you 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 kind of feel like oh okay I've done this before I've seen this before I I know people I mean for the G20 leaders meetings there was always uh, you know somebody new coming along mm-hmm. and I was often found myself introducing people to each other uh, and 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 so after you've had those experiences what happens is you start uh, with uh, nervousness you start with the imposter syndrome. But if you dig into it, mm-hmm. if you really just put everything you have into it, you learn, you learn and you grow in the position and you begin to feel like, okay, I, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I understand this. Now, for a lot of people, uh, it, and if this is perfectly reasonable, once they get into that position of comfort, they just keep going because, you know, that's it. being the head of a big agency and or being the head of an Ivy League school. That's a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for me, Every time it got comfortable, you know, that's sort of when I um, started getting a little uncomfortable. Right. right? Because the sense that I always had is, you know, um, uh, it, 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 it's not going to be easy tackling the most important problems of the world. It's always going to be a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you're feeling too comfortable, you have to be careful. Now, you know, my brother, my older brother, um, he's, he's just... Uh, uh, he, he, everyone is his friend. He is a hilarious guy. He, he used to write, um, jokes for his friends who are stand-up comedians, right? He's just the nicest guy yeah. in the world. He used to say about me, he said, you know, Jim, if we're in a, in, in some place and, uh, there are three doors and one of them is open, right? I'll always just walk through the door that's open. You, on the other <laughs> hand, you put your head through the wall just in case that might be a better way to get to the other side. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so, you know, that's, that's been the difference between uh-huh. us. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think I've tried to, you know, intentionally hurt myself, uh-huh. but, but, but I have tried to set, you know, high bars uh-huh. uh, for tackling difficult problems. And, and also, uh, yeah, one of the things I found, uh, I, I, I really admire people who are just 
you know, uh, have a military-like discipline. Boom, boom, boom. Get everything done. Everything is in order. Everything is is set. I, I'm not so good at that. Mm-hmm. I respond much, much better when there is a huge, difficult, challenging problem in front of me, mm-hmm. and I've got to, I've got to run. Mm-hmm. Right. So that 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 always has been the best way for me uh, to organize my life and my time. It's 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 really kind of. I respect you in so many ways and I don't want this to sound like I'm sucking up to you in any way, but I'm hearing what you're saying. And I just, there's so many similarities in how we think that I'm just like, Oh yeah, that's, that's exactly how I think people always like, why are you doing this? Like, I don't know, like this, there is an easier way, but that's not, I don't think the right way. Um, that kind of thing. But I guess a personal question is for me having, you know, I look back at my my life or career and I feel like I've been 150% go all the time. And I hit this point kind of right now where I'm in this slump of just, I'm exhausted. I am just, I feel like deadbeat in many ways. Did you ever have that period? You, when going through so many different positions, so many different challenges that you're trying to ta- tackle, how do you keep that spark going? And have, did you ever have a moment where you kind of like, fizzled out for a little bit. Yeah. You, you know, I think the moments when I fizzled out were, you know, crazy, crazy enough, the moments uh, when we had success. Mm. So, you know, um, uh, just to give you an example, when I went to the World Health Organization, uh, you, you know, at, right at that moment, the moment that I arrived, um, there were 25 million people in Africa living with HIV. Mm-hmm. And and the the consensus at the time was, it's impossible to treat those people with uh, with the drugs that we had, which were extremely effective. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, uh, literally 99.99% of the public health world was saying not possible. You know, we're just going to have to focus on prevention of new infections. The 25 million people, they're going to just have to die. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I couldn't believe it. I thought I, I would say things like, um, you know, and this is when, Eric, I felt like, okay, this is the most important issue of our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say things like, okay, folks, if our generation lets 25 million people die in Africa, even though we have the medicines, because just, just because we think it's too complicated, it's too difficult, we will forever be remembered as the generation that let Africa and African young people die, mm-hmm. right? We will be known for that just as much as the Nazis are known for the Holocaust, mm-hmm. right? And so... You know, and right at that moment, I was never more alive. I, you know, I felt like my head was on fire because mm-hmm. there's just so many things coming at us. Uh, but then over a three-year period, we, we really did change the world. Mm-hmm. We changed the world from a place where they were saying it's impossible to one where we had a million people. We went from nobody to a million people on treatment and everyone's idea of what was possible changed. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment that I thought, okay. Now I got to go on and do something uh-huh. else. I mean, it sounds crazy. I, I should have taken some victory laps. <laughs> I should have taken time to enjoy that. But I just felt like, okay, that's that's the contribution that I right. usually try to make. Right. Uh, you know, the, the contribution of of uh, convincing people that something that they say is impossible is in fact possible. But once I've sh- once we've shown that it's possible, once everyone's convinced, right? That's when I sort of lose energy. Mm. So you know, I I I, I um. Uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing, but let me just say one thing, Eric, right? I, I'm amazed at what you've done. All right. <laughs> so 
And and let me just say that I would I would give up half of my resume if I could sing like you. Okay? <laughs> I would wipe it off if I if I, if I could sing like you. Um. And for, for you for you to have come not speaking much Korean, right? Having been rejected uh, from your Glee club in college, <laughs> and then becoming the star that you are today, I think that's amazing, right? That's amazing. And and you know now for you. It's what's next, right? right? Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think I think that there's, uh, you know, you could do just about anything, and you know, you've got to you've got to find the thing that gets you gets you excited, yeah. you know. And 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 I, as I say, if you know, if we're alike, that that's um, you know, finding that thing is uh, is important. Yeah, I know. I appreciate it, and it's. I feel like this conversation right now is 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 somewhat of a personal therapy session, but but it's <laughs> no. I'm telling you, man. I think I think you're dope. I think you're dope. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I mean, you're 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 a, a cultural icon figure in Korea, and you grew up in the United States in Atlanta. Yeah, for, you know, for Christ's sake, of all places, right? Yeah. And uh, it's not that's not an easy thing to do. I, I see the pressure that's on, you know, uh, on the on the on the Korean uh, uh, stars. It's 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 hard. Well, thank you. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, as much as I feel like I've I've tried to do a lot of interesting, fun things for me in my life, I think it's possible because there are people like yourself who paved the way in ways that we don't even realize until we kind of get to know your story and people around you. So you know, just as much, thank you for for what you do, not just. For Korean Americans, Asian Americans, but just for the world, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's incredible stuff. I guess you know one one question I have is from a more anthropological perspective, right? There's something about Korean culture and the people. Um, even if you look at like how well Korea has been exporting literally everything, oh yeah, um, for a while. Uh, is there something about the way you work and the way you drive your career and your life that is just innately Korean? <laughs> you know, um, the, 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 uh, the, 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 you know, I'm an anthropologist of Korea. I did my mm-hmm. dissertation field work in, in Korea. And uh, I just remember learning about so many different things, you know, the, the things like, and I'll say it in English, you know, that this guy is just so, uh, you know, still can, right? Mm-hmm. He, he is so intense. Right. That when he, when he sits on the lawn, the grass doesn't grow there anymore. Right? I'm sure you've heard that thing, right? So I, you know, Koreans have that kind of uh, intensity mm-hmm. uh, that is, um, I, you know, I think it's it's very it's very special. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, uh, for for I think uh, it was about um, uh, oh gosh, it was f- um, six years that uh, Secretary General Ban Ki Moon and I served together, mm-hmm. right? And so um, we. We did something. I think that I hope that it will last. Uh, we brought the World Bank and the, sec- the and the United Nations together uh, uh, in a way that it never had been before. Mm-hmm. And so I got to spend a ton of time with the uh, with the Secretary General. And this guy was just the most incredibly disciplined person I have ever met. Mm-hmm. I, I I used to call him. I used to call him the um, uh, the, the the superstar athlete of diplomacy. Mm. Right. I mean, he he met with everyone. He had patience for everyone. He went back and forth and talked to people to try to make things work out. And there was a, you know, I I felt like I recognized in him something just profoundly Korean, mm. right? That that you know he he chakago, right? Uh, he was just so disciplined, so 
uh, sincere, you know, so such a such a good man uh, that it was. I felt so proud mm-hmm. to 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 be be around him mm-hmm. and to to know that he was uh, 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 that leader. I tell you, I I, I think that um, I, I wonder if the Korean educational system itself builds a kind of grit mm-hmm. and determination mm-hmm. that that you know you you can't do in any other way. Mm-hmm. I, in, in the way that Korean kids are taught how to study, how to organize themselves just to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those skills are then translated into all these other things mm-hmm. that they do. You know, when I, when I hear about, about the boy bands and the, 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 the girl bands, et cetera, they work so mm-hmm. hard. They just work harder than anyone else. And it's that work that has led them to be, I think, to be such stars. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's something about the school system. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about the fact that, you know, we're literally one generation away from just utter devastation, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, at the World Bank Group, uh, the, uh, the the vice president of the of East Asia uh, put a report on my desk that was from 1962. In 1962, this is three years old. Uh, what they wrote about Korea was that this country is so poor mm-hmm. uh, that it's uh, it it doesn't qualify for a World Bank loan because mm-hmm. they thought we can give them a loan, but there's no way they're going to pay right. it back. It's a more- mostly rural country the you know the literacy rate was less than 20 percent mm-hmm. right uh the percentage of people who'd gone to college at that time was just tiny mm-hmm. so coming from there and and having the sense of just how hard it's going to be to get there and some people will say you know um the, the countries that grow rice uh because of the stoop labor they know what it means to put a lot of hard work in and not see the result until much later i i, I don't know if that's true mm-hmm. But I think the combination of the history, um, is there something about national character? Gosh, who knows? But I sure see uh, uh, lots and lots of Koreans right. who just just throw themselves at something, mm-hmm. you know, just throw themselves at difficult tasks and keep going at mm-hmm. it. Um, it's a, it, you know, now this, in psychology, they have a word for it. It's called, it's, they call it grit. Right. And, uh, and, they, and, and uh, you know, great psychologist like Angela Duckworth wrote a whole book on grit. A- Angela's actually uh, Chinese-American. Mm. Her husband's name is Duckworth. But she wrote a wonderful book called Grit. And she believes, and I think most people do, that grit is something you can actually teach. So it's not like people in Korea are born with it. But you know, uh, uh, having grit, I think, is now firmly part mm-hmm. of uh, how people judge each other. Mm. If you don't have grit, if you don't, if you don't have the ability to stick to something, I think in Korea people look down on you. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I think it definitely directly affects you know whatever success you want to measure in whatever field you're doing. Uh, you know, kind of segue off of that, off of the education thing. You know, a lot of our listeners are college students, some high school students, many who have just recently graduated, and I think. For those who are recently graduating, who are looking at graduation, they're entering the workforce at a very interesting time, right? right. You know, we have COVID going on, just a global economy that we don't really know what's going to happen. Everybody's kind of on edge. All while, I feel like a lot of people think what we learn in our university system, particularly now, mm-hmm. doesn't exactly line up. It doesn't sync up with what we're doing in the real world. Yeah. You know, as as someone who is incredibly overqualified and has so many degrees, what do you have to say to Gen Z or millennials who are pursuing education and trying to figure out their paths in life? Yeah. So um, there was, there were um, uh, a couple of 
um, of uh, uh, children of friends of mine who are graduating, mm -hmm. and they ask me to to write something to them about what what I would what I would tell an eighteen year old mm -hmm. going out into the world uh, for the first time, and so um, I thought a lot about it. I thought, well, what what would I tell them? So the the most important thing is that you've got to get into the mode of being a lifelong learner, mm. right? So it's not it's not so much what you learn, is that the habits that you pick up. And when I was at Dartmouth, I talked a lot about habits of mind. And if you look up, if you Google habits of mind, there's like a whole world that thinks about, well, what are the habits of mind that we want to cultivate in, in all young people? Mm -hmm. uh, for me, the most important thing is that I have been willing uh, to take on new things, even at, a, at, a, you know, at, at every age in my life. And in, right now, the new thing I'm taking on is uh, you know, project finance, you know, modeling, the value of a company, looking at how a particular piece of infrastructure will lead to economic growth. These are all things that are totally new to me, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm learning them. And, and often I, I feel like I'm, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a complete, you know, a, a baby <laughs> learning a new language, right? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't learn Korean again. I, I, I spoke it until I was five, completely forgot mm -hmm. it. And then at the age of 24, went back to Korea to learn Korean so that I could do my dissertation field work, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, looking like a Korean and being there, you know that experience, I Eric, do. you had it yourself. You know, that the experience of becoming a baby again mm -hmm. and then scratching your way up so that you learn enough of the language so that you can function as an adult, um, that I had that experience at 24. I did it again uh, at 28 when I went to Peru and learned Spanish, mm. right? I, had, I learned another language at the age of 28 you know, learned um, uh, higher ed administration uh, when I went to Dartmouth, learned, you know, economic development. So uh, you, you have to be prepared to continue to do that. Mm -hmm. So what you need is some basic foundations and then uh, the, the um, ability uh, to dive into something new and then pick around it, look through it mm -hmm. and figure out a way uh, to continue to, to learn. You're, you're going to have to continue to learn mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. All right. So just always being curious, always learning. Yeah, that's always been curious, but then also being systematic mm -hmm. about it and saying, okay, what do I need to master in order to be able to um, uh, in, in order to be able to make a contribution mm -hmm. in this way? And I think this idea of 10,000 hours that mastery great. requires 10,000 hours. I think that that works out pretty well. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, you know, you mentioned you've been learning mm -hmm how to look at global infrastructure and where to put funds and, you know, private equity essentially is what you're doing. Um, you know, at the culmination of having achieved so many things, having played so many important roles, what was it about your current role that kind of drew you in and what was your thinking in, in approaching this new, new position? Uh, you know, the, um, the great, uh, sort of the, one of the most powerful experiences for me was going to China. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up in a world where people would say, hey, you better eat that. Think of all the starving children in China. Mm. And indeed, there were a lot of starving children in China. And as recently as 1990, 1990, just 30 years ago, 70% of people in China were living in extreme poverty. Mm. That's less than $1.95 a day. And, the, 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 you know, extreme poverty is just a horrendous kind of situation. 70% mm. were living in extreme poverty. And in 30 years, they went from 70% living in extreme poverty to now almost nobody mm -hmm. is living in extreme poverty. Uh, 800 million people have been lifted out of, uh, of extreme poverty in mm -hmm. China. 
So, um, you know, you, you, you can criticize China for, for lots of things, just as you can criticize any country. But what they did to lift their people out of poverty was just uh, unbelievably moving to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so if you step back and say, okay, so uh, for people like me, people who grew up, who were born in Korea, in a place that was, you know, war-torn, thought of as a basket case by the World Bank, lucky enough to have two parents who are college-educated, but uh, living in a context in which the vast majority, again, in Korea, probably 80-90% of the people were living in extreme poverty in in the late 1950s. For a person like that, my commitment should be that everyone on earth has the same opportunity that I did to get an education, to get a good job, to have a family. And so um, if you look at what China did, the, 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 the thing that's probably most important was they invested in the kind of infrastructure that would allow everyone to participate in the global economy. Mm-hmm. So they invented new ways of engaging in the global economy. Alibaba, Tencent, you know, the e-commerce right. that, was, uh, that, that really has become huge in China not, not originally maybe a Chinese idea, but they turned it into something that is bringing literally everybody, even in the poorest provinces, into the global economy. I realized early on in my tenure that that's what was necessary. Mm. Yes, we, we need good health care, and I knew I would always work on mm-hmm. that. Yes, we need good education, and I knew I would always work on it. But the thing that was going to hold everybody back was the lack of infrastructure, mm-hmm. especially you know, electricity, uh, transport. Uh, IT, water and waste, those are the things that were going to hold people back. And, and when I was at the World Bank, what, what I realized was that there's just no way that the traditional aid infrastructure, whether it's you know, foreign assistance from rich countries or um, you know, huge banks like the World Bank, there was just no way that there was enough money in that system mm-hmm. to really build infrastructure everywhere. So uh, I, I had decided early on that someday someday I was going to do this. Someday I was going to go out and try to build uh, a private sector group that would invest in infrastructure in developing countries and give people a chance. Mm. You know, we, we, I'd love to be able to, to do something in Africa, for example, that will double and triple the amount of electricity mm-hmm. uh, that Africa has. All of sub-Saharan Africa has about as much electricity as Belgium, as wow. one country in, in Europe. And they simply cannot lift be, lift themselves out of poverty if they don't have electricity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, this is really the next mm-hmm. big step. Yeah. I mean, I, if, we, if we don't figure out a way to bring in private sector uh, investment in infrastructure developing countries, you know, I, they, don't, they don't really have a chance. Yeah. Aid, aid is not going to solve the problem at this right. point. Right. I mean, that's fascinating. And, and I would maybe at a later date, maybe just on a, not on a podcast, just pick your brain on that because that was, that's something that was really interesting to me growing up. You know, I spent a lot of time in Latin America. I spent some time in Africa or India. You know, I know that like I, what I contributed probably didn't change the lives of people, but that was kind of what drove me to, to study international studies and, and political science. And um, that's like fascinating stuff. But as you just recently joined this new role, COVID happens. <laughs> COVID explodes across the world, and it's almost ironic in the sense that you have kind of been pulled back into this world of, of global health and policy and infrastructure in that sense. Um, and 
for our listeners, they may not be aware of how much you have been writing and being on TV and, and talking about the importance of building the right policies to approach this. But um, I think we're on the same page in saying that in the U.S. particularly, it has been handled horrifically. Um, and I read all your articles and it was you know outlining a lot of the places in Asia that have done it so well, particularly in Korea. Um, but I think a lot of people, myself included, I think we've been, I don't know how you feel, we've been like exhausted from COVID this past year. Um, just feeling helpless, feeling powerless, not knowing what to do. So I guess the question that I have, so we're not harping on the trauma, traumatization and the disappointment that we've had to deal with is where do we go from here? How do we build from here in a way that is meaningful, that is effective, and how do we contribute to that? I think that's something that I wanted to ask you. Well, you know, there's there's um, uh, lots of things that we could do, uh, and and the question is which which countries will step up and do the things that are necessary to stop something like this from happening again. And so, you know, uh, Korea got it right. Uh, I think the mayor's outbreak in 2014 just scared the hell out of mm-hmm. everybody. So so they were prepared. Korea was prepared. And I just still have enormous respect. Uh, early on in March um, uh, of this year, I spoke with some leaders at the Korean Centers for Disease mm-hmm. Control. And I knew immediately that they were playing a different ball game than the rest mm-hmm. of us. You know, they, they, they talked about um, the virus as if it were a person. They, they started sussing out its, almost its personality, where it liked to hide, mm-hmm. how, it li- how it liked to move. And, you know, uh, still today, I think, the Koreans have the best data of anyone about how this spreads. Uh, there was just recently a story uh, in, the, in the Los Angeles Times. A Korean group found that there was a girl who got infected, and they had no idea where she got infected because there were no other cases in her town. And it turns out that she went into a restaurant. She was only in there for five minutes, and she was infected by someone 20 feet away from her because that person 20 feet away from her coughed or sneezed and was sitting right underneath a fan that literally blew the virus, infected her, and then that's how she got COVID, right? So nobody else knows this because nobody else has this kind of data, uh, certainly not in the Western world. In China, they have data Mm -hmm. like this because nobody is able to follow every single infection to know exactly where they came Mm -hmm. from, right? You have to have the thing under control so that a single case sends a signal and then you can go around and find out exactly how that case uh, happened. So basically, that kind of system is going to be required in every single country in the mm. world. Now, is it is it doable? Absolutely. But it's not doable uh, if you start too late, if you're in denial, if you don't put enough money into it. It's it, you, You've got to, you know, you, you, you've, you've really got to prepare ahead of time. So building the kinds of systems that Korea had uh, is, is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. But there's something else. I mean, I, the, you know, the uh, COVID is almost like a, a solidarity test. You know, um, uh, uh, the more literary types are calling it fellow feeling. Mm. Uh, but it used to be, we used to call it human solidarity, human compassion, a sense that you, you know, you, you are part of the culture. Mm-hmm. I think also, you know, Koreans showed just how much solidarity they, they are capable of right. feeling during the Asian financial mm-hmm. crisis in the late 1990s, yeah. you know? You'll remember when that happened, uh, they took their own silver and gold and deposited it 
you know, in the, in, in the, um, uh, uh, in, in downtown Seoul, I think in front of the, 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 the Ministry of, uh, of Finance. And, and they raised more than $2 billion wow. just by donating their own silver and mm -hmm. gold. And I remember hearing about that and thinking, oh my God, what other place would ever do something like yeah. that, right? So, so uh, those, a country that's capable of those kinds of acts of human solidarity, are, those are the countries that are going to do mm -hmm. best in the face of, uh, of, of a virus like mm -hmm. COVID. And so, you know, you wear a mask not for yourself, but, but for mm -hmm. others. You know, in the United States, now we're really putting the message out there that if you wear a mask, it protects you too, not just others, right? Because that's the message we have to send, right? But uh, still, still in the United States, my right to be stupid and not wear a mask is more important uh, than this fellow feeling, the sense that I owe it to the other members of my, uh, of, of, of my society uh, to, to not infect them. So, you know, the science has to be respected. We've got to build the kind of ground game, the kind of very, you know, uh, good sort of epidemiological, mm -hmm. you know, shoe leather detective work mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that the great countries have. But also, we just have to ask fundamental questions about, so what's the nature of human solidarity mm -hmm. in our country, right. right? And I think what the U.S. has said is, no, my right to be just as stupid as I want to be is more important uh, than protecting, you know, my fellow human mm -hmm. beings in my country. Right. No, I, I, I laugh because it just seems so, you know, I've been in Korea for the majority of this year and I get back to the States and I'm like, how is this possible? Like it, it is <laughs> right. jarring. It is completely jarring. Absolutely. And so it's been a shock. It's been uh, to see people who are so lax about it is also very shocking. Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, it kind of speaks also to the, it's just become so politicized in many ways, um, unfortunately. Yeah. So where it's global health, our health should be just health. It shouldn't be politicized one way or another, but unfortunately it has. But because it has been that way, I guess looking at this new administration, the Biden administration that's going to be coming in, have you seen anything there that is optimistic or, you know, have you been speaking with them at all in any way to kind of inform them or to consult them in, in potential next steps? No, you know, Eric, I, I wasn't involved in the campaign. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I, have, I, I know so many of the people mm -hmm. who are taking, certainly in, in, the, in the health arena. Uh, but, you know, um, Janet Yellen is, uh, is a person, you know, she's a mm -hmm. friend that we both, we both went to Brown. We, you know, we went to a lot of these uh, G20 meetings together when she was uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, at the mm -hmm. Fed, you know, and, uh, and, and so, so um, uh, I know a lot of these people, and I, I think just from the top to the bottom, I'm extremely okay. encouraged by the people who've been chosen. I mean, for in in the health arena, you know, Vivek Murthy uh, trained in the same program that I did in uh, in Boston. Rochelle Walensky trained at the at the other hospital, but uh, it, it is someone who uh, who I've met and who you know my closest friends know extremely well, and she's just. She's going to be terrific mm -hmm. at uh, Centers for Disease Control. So I think I think things will get better, certainly from a leadership mm -hmm. perspective. I think you know the Biden administration will say all the right things. They'll have all the right goals, um, you know, both for, from the perspective of the epidemic, and I think also in terms of investing so that it doesn't happen again. 
but you know this the divide that you talked about eric you know um 70 what 8 million people voted for biden but over 70 million people voted for for president mm -hmm. trump as well so um he he certainly tapped into something that's very mm -hmm. real and very powerful and so you know I, I i think that the biden administration has to think about well what does that mean and and how can we how can we address uh the the, the kind of angst and concern uh, that uh, the people who voted for President Trump are feeling. Now, um, the, you know, it's only by doing that, I think, that we'll be able to build the kind of, uh, uh, you know, sense of solidarity that will protect us from epidemics in the future and that will also get us on the right mm -hmm. path. I mean, you know, I'm very worried about the status of education in this mm -hmm. country. You know, we're falling behind in terms of uh, math scores, in terms of all, all of the... Um, uh, standardized testing, uh, there's, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity. Uh, there's not the same kind of opportunity today that there was before for children to do better than their mm -hmm. parents. And so there, there, you know, President Trump tapped into something very deep. And, uh, you know, the, this administration, rather than just saying, okay, we win, we're going to go in our direction. Uh, they're going to have to really take that seriously. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing where that's mm -hmm. going to go. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, and hopefully we can get back to some sense of, of normalcy in the next year or so. Um, yeah. And we just kind of, I guess, hopefully, like you were speaking about, that solidarity. That solidarity. I hope that we can encourage people to kind of come together in one way or another. That's probably the biggest task that we have as people, as, as citizens of the world. Um, we've always had that, but I feel like it's more dire now than it's ever been. Um, so that's something that my heart is always on and praying for. But I feel like, you know, we've been talking for about almost an hour now. And I don't, I, I know you're a busy guy. We want to let you go. You got people to save, things to do. Um, but I don't want to end on like this, this note of having talked about so much heavy stuff. So we got to lighten it up just a little bit. Now, I am not, I've never played golf, right? But I know, and I've heard this from many, many people that you are, a standout, amazing athlete and golfer. So for our listeners, Jim has won club championships. He's gone undefeated in, in golf trips against pros and some incredible <laughs> players. No. So this all comes back to it. Why are you so good at everything? How did, you, how did you fit golf into your life and how did you become so good? Like, do you have a daily routine? You said you don't live this very regimented life, but the only way that it makes sense to me that you have done so much is you have a great mm -hmm. regimen you practice, you do all these things. Tell us about this. So, so Eric, I, I am competitive. Yeah. Right? And I think that, I think it goes back, you know, to, my father was competitive. Mm. He was an athlete too. He was competitive. And he, you know, I remember uh, when people said racist things to him, he fought mm. back. He would, he, he would, he would not take crap from anybody. Mm. Right. And so, um, you know, I, uh, when, I, when we came to Dallas, right, um, to Dallas, Texas, is where we landed, you know, when I was five years old. Uh, and at first I didn't speak uh, 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 any English. So I remember going into the house of a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I think I was, I was six at the time. And you know, he brought me in. We were having something to drink. And his older brother came home. And when he saw me, he yelled and screamed at me to get out of his oh, house, wow. right? because of the way I looked, right? And um, uh, I remember, you know, uh, playing football and basketball. There was one time 
we went to play basketball in a small little town, Washington, Iowa. And I say it now because uh, <laughs> I, I, I want people to I want people to remember that that's what they were like. And uh, uh, on our team, uh, the start on the starting lineup, there was me and there was an African American mm-hmm. guy, and we were we were actually very close friends, Gary Monroe. And when we came out on the floor, uh, the people on the stand started screaming and yelling and spitting. Wow you chink, go back to where you came from, right? And so my father, um, not taking shit as he did, um, he went to, the, to talk to the athletic director and said, you know, that was mm-hmm. too much, right? And the athletic director said, oh, you're just being too wow. sensitive, right? They didn't mean anything wow. by it, right? So I had these experiences <laughs> from when I was young. And so, um, uh, you, you know, I, um, I, I was never competitive about making money or, you know, hurting anybody else. But in the context of a game, uh, uh, you know, I, I still have this competitive mm-hmm. drive. The other thing is, it's, it's just like the rest of my life. Unless I have something that I'm trying to do, uh, to, you know, in, in a contest or something, um, it's hard for me to get motivated. So, uh, uh, I, I, you know, a phenomenon, I don't even know if, if you, you may be too young for that, but the, among the Korean Americans on the East Coast, Volleyball tournaments were a huge. Oh, were thing, they? Right? So, <laughs> no yeah, idea. They were, they were a huge thing. It's it was the time, like twice a year, where the entire Korean American community of everybody on the East Coast would get together, and there would be dance, and there would be dinners, and it was focused around volleyball mm. tournaments. So you know, uh, at the time I was, uh, you know, in college and in medical school, I was single, and so well, that was the prime time to to, you know, meet uh, members of whatever sex you're interested in, you know, at any given time. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to get good at volleyball. <laughs> so I'd never played, <laughs> I'd never played it before. Uh, I'd never played yeah. it before. There's no volleyball in Iowa. <laughs> and, and I just started going crazy trying to get mm-hmm. better at volleyball. And uh, eventually um, I got good enough so that I played on the Brown University wow. team. Right. So we, I played intercollegiate volleyball and I would, you know, I would like not be so diligent, but about two months before a volleyball tournament, I would be doing jump squats. I'd go crazy because I knew I was going to be on this stage and that it was going to be competitive and, and I would get yeah. ready for it. So now the only thing I have is golf, right? The only thing I, I can't, I, I used to play basketball, mm-hmm. football. I can't play those really right. anymore. So golf is what I have. And so every, everything I do is focused around, you know, getting in better shape to be better mm-hmm. at golf and g- golf now it, it used to be, you know, a bunch of, you know, a, a, a big belly guys smoking cigarettes, play golf. Not right. anymore. It's a totally different. Game now. And so I, 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 I do enjoy <laughs> playing. Uh, if I didn't, if I didn't have it, I think I'd lose motivation <laughs> to stay, to stay in any kind of shape at all. So our listeners, you know, I talked about it before. Jim has this movie. It's called bending the arc. It's on Netflix and it kind of, it shows the entire process of Jim and his his team uh, going down to Haiti and all over the world, actually, and, and fighting, doing what people were saying was impossible in the medical field. And so we have to talk about this. So, Jim, like, I know we've talked about so much about your life and all that stuff, but what kind of brought us together originally for this podcast is talk about the movie as well. So could you tell us, like, a little bit of insight into the movie, what it's about, and whatever you want to share about it? Yeah. So, you know, Eric, it gets to a lot of the themes that we've already spoken about. And when uh, I tell people that, that, that uh, 
you know, we found all these people suffering from drug-resistant tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And people from the World Health Organization, at, this was before I got involved in the WHO, were telling us, no, no, you've got to let them die. No, no, don't treat them. You've got to mm -hmm. let them die. And when we were trying to argue that you can't let 25 million people in Africa die, when we have treatments that you take once in the morning and once in the evening, you know, th there were people who were furious at us and saying, what are you talking about? There's no way you can treat these people in Africa. And so what happened was a, a couple of, 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 of a bunch of, well, there's really one, Corey Stern, uh, a brilliant documentary filmmaker just went through the archives of the Harvard Medical School Library, went through our own archives, looked for every little piece of information and documented exactly how that happened. Right? And so um, it's, it's called Bending the Ark and it, it's from uh, a, a line that, um, uh, uh, that Martin Luther King used to say all the time. It, it was actually first said by um, uh, a pastor uh, in, uh, in the 1940s, I think. Uh, but uh, the line is, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward mm -hmm. justice, right? But uh, the title is Bending the Arc, because what Martin Luther King showed us, even though he said the arc of history is long and it bends toward justice, it didn't bend toward justice uh, uh, on its mm -hmm. own. Martin Luther King gave his life right. grabbing and trying to bend the arc toward justice. I mean, he, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen mm -hmm. on its own. And so, you know, the, the, the whole movie is about how we tried to bend the arc uh, of history toward uh, justice. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, they, I, they did a great job. Um, there's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of very revealing scenes mm -hmm. uh, in there. In, in, uh, um, uh, there. There's one in which they really played a trick on me, right? I, they, <laughs> it's not a trick. They, 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 they showed me. I know what you're talking they, about. They showed, yeah, right. There, there was this young gentleman that I had treated, um, you know, probably the, 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 they shot the scene in 2015 that I had treated 10 years mm. before, right? And they, we have footage of me treating this guy. And he looked like he was going to die. He right. looked like he was literally skin and bones. He, he looked like he was just on death's door. And then they brought me, I, you know, this was at the annual meeting of the World Bank and the IMF. I mean, the, the, all of the leading lights in the finance world were, you know, were in Peru at that time. They went and they found this mm. kid in Peru and uh, uh, shot film of him. And as I was sitting there trying to get ready for this meeting, they showed me the, the, the footage and I just started yeah. weeping. Uh, you know, it was just um, uh, to, you know, to, to see, you know, here I was in this position <laughs> being the president of the World Bank and you know this guy who was living in a hovel and surely would have died if we hadn't intervened uh here he was looking you know uh strong he'd, he'd become an accountant he and he talked about why you know everyone's life mm -hmm. matters and so um uh, uh they 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 set it up too so that they <laughs> they, they they thought i was gonna cry and they set it up so that they would cap capture it so that, that's how hard they yeah. worked on it. So, I, it, you know, it's on Netflix. Uh, it'd be great. Uh, take a look. You know, it's a, it's a, it's something that you want to watch with people, people you love and uh, people you care Absolutely. about. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I got there so quickly and I found it to be uplifting in many ways. Um, one thing that I was just like also wowed about is that you guys had the foresight to shoot stuff from the very beginning. You had all that on yeah. video. Yeah. 
And I was like, it's incredible that they have all this footage from, what, 30 years back almost um, from then. And to just see the progress of the organization and the lives that it's changed and the amazing work that you guys have done. um, It was kind of like that warm feeling where like there are good people in the world. We just need to mm. we we just need to be reminded and encouraged of that. So, um, if you're listening to this podcast, and, and, yeah, please check it out. And you know the crazy thing is that that just as uh, the public health world had given up on drug resistant tuberculosis in Peru and Haiti, just as they'd given up on HIV treatment in Africa, they gave up on doing the full public health response in the United States. Mm. That's why that's why we've got mm-hmm. involved. And our, our team now, the Partners in Health team, working in the United States is mm. huge. State after state after state has come to us and said, how do we, how do we work in, mm. a, in an environment like this? Uh, and they, they've never worked in a kind of out of control uh, health right. environment like this right. before. And that's all we do. That's all we did at Partners in Health. We've worked in places where diseases were, were running out of control, and yet we still uh, we're able to mount a response. And so that's what, that's why we're working mm-hmm. in the United States. You know, it, 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 it tells you something that an organization that's known for its work in the poorest countries in the world now has probably its largest footprint, certainly economically in the United mm-hmm. States. I mean, there's so much that we have to fix, that we have to heal, that we have to develop and grow. Um, but it's, it's reassuring to see that there are great minds like, yourself kind of leading the charge. So thank you for doing what you do. All right. But let, let, let's get back. Let's get back to you. <laughs> Why? Eric. There's nothing to talk about, Jim. <laughs> All right. Eric, look, look, you, you are, you are a uniquely gifted communicator. Oh, thank you. Right? And, and, and you have a way of putting people at ease. You have a way of getting people to say things that they wouldn't normally say. I've seen a lot of your interviews because I know that every time a, uh, uh, an English-speaking celebrity would come to Korea. You would interview them. You have a very special talent. And let me just say that there's nothing that I have ever done, any project, any task I've ever taken on that hasn't re- required fantastic mm-hmm. communication. I've worked, I've worked with some great communication specialists, uh, but uh, you have a very special gift. And so all the people who are um, uh, listening to the, the podcast, I think we should think together about the next great thing that Eric should mm. do. You should keep singing. You should keep doing your, your, your podcast. You should keep doing all the things that you're doing. But you have a very special talent at communicating. And you, you, you can't let that, that, uh, that uh, uh, win. Well, thank you. That's very encouraging. And if you think of anything, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, we, can, we, can, we can do that on the next yes, podcast, absolutely. right? We can get a group of your friends and we can talk about what should let's, Eric do next. That, that let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and it, it, it could be, hey, Eric, we think you're dope. <laughs> <laughs> that you know what I don't I don't mind that I don't I don't hate the idea we should do a special um that'd be great I'd be happy right. to be on we'll, we'll definitely have to try to schedule that but you know you've been so great well, and we can get Mickey we can get Let's Mickey Lee too that Mickey will Let's do, it. do it that'd be great that man. would be so much fun <laughs> um I mean you've been so overly gracious with your time I know you, you are so busy so thank you so much for making the time to to speak with me and to, to all the listeners um, to all the young people who, you know, I think a lot of people might have really taken away a lot from this conversation. So thank you for the time. I think two last questions. 
First, what do your kids think of you? And do they know (laughs) (laughs) how cool you are? Absolutely not. (laughs) My kids... (laughs) My, my my kids my kids think I'm a doofus. My kids think I'm uh, technologically handicapped. Right? My kid my the, the only time my kids sort of think I'm cool. So um, you know a person I've gotten to know fairly well is Bono. Mm. So when uh, when Bono had his concert in Washington D.C., I brought my older son and four of his friends backstage to meet Bono. Right. Mm-hmm. So. My older son Thomas thought I was cool for about 15 minutes on that day, <laughs> and and then when uh, we uh, I, we were I forget where we were, but with the whole family, we were at um, uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the G20 meeting in Hamburg, mm. right? And so you know my my little one, he's 11 now. Uh, we were meeting Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. We were meeting all these guys, and he didn't think that they were too cool. But then we went to the concert that they uh-huh. were having and he met, met uh, Pharrell Williams uh-huh. right? and he thought, Oh, okay, dad. <laughs> right. That was my 15 minutes of coolness with my younger <laughs> son. So, uh, 15 minutes I- I'll settle for. That's about all I get. Well, you know what? If it's any constellation, I think you're cool. I think you're pretty dope. <laughs> um, uh, any final words of encouragement or anything you want to say to our listeners? Um, I-, I-, I know you've shared so much, but just to kind of, wrap everything together. Um, I think what people need these days are just words of encouragement. So, uh, you know, I say this uh, a lot when I'm in Asia, I've said, I've said it to the Chinese leaders. It's become more true with COVID. Uh, You know, Asia has to lead and it has to lead in a way that's different than the way that Europe and the United States has led in the past. Right. And so, you know, all of the social justice um, uh, talk that was just so powerful um, uh, with the, you know, the killing of George Lloyd, et cetera, right? I mean, this was so powerful uh, and, and it, 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 it caught us all up in a moment. And we thought, okay, this is important enough, even with COVID for me to get out and protest on the streets, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, what, what does that mean? Well, part of it is that it is connected to the history of the West's relationship uh, with Africa and with with people of color all over the world, right? And so, uh, you know, facing what what my friend Brian Stevenson, who they made a movie about him, Just Mercy, um, and he he's a very good friend, and he, he started something called the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama. And what he said was, all this stuff, all this stuff, Black Lives Matter, it's connected to slavery. It, you know, we've never gotten past the legacy of slavery in this country. And I think he's right. So um, uh, as Asia uh, now comes into a position where culturally, economically, socially, uh, uh, and, and now with COVID, you know, uh, Korea, China, Japan are going to be so much further ahead economically, even Malaysia, Philippines, the, all of Asia is going to be ahead. As it moves, as this, as the region moves ahead, there's got to be a fundamental question of of will we lead differently than the West has led? Right now, look, I'm not I'm not saying that that you know Western leaders today have to take responsibility for the slavery of of you know more than 100 years ago, but this notion that that there is a West and it is going to convey civilization, it's going to convey all the sort of you know, uh, uh, better things mm-hmm. in life to the rest of the world. 
you know, the, the time for that kind of attitude is mm-hmm. over. And so as uh, Asian countries and as people like us, Eric, uh, start moving into the lead as we're part of um, cultures and societies, speak languages, uh, uh, you know, of a, of a region that is moving so quickly, uh, we have to decide, uh, are we going to just revel in our wealth and, and, and enjoy it and say, huh, look at us, you know, we've done mm-hmm. so well. Or are we going to say, you know, especially as Koreans, we started, you know, when I was born in 1959, Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world, and it was thought to be hopeless. So I, my life has, has, has uh, you know, spanned that kind of, uh, uh, of historical uh, um, uh, breadth. Now, what does that mean? I think it has to mean for me that uh, uh, my commitment has to be, okay, so we're going to try to find ways of respectfully of uh, with uh, with great compassion making it possible for every other person on earth to go down that mm-hmm. same path so that truly uh, that truly what will happen is that if you work hard if you take advantage of the things that are put in front of you you can succeed you can join the global economy you can have a family you can have uh, a house you can be educated uh, if if we step forward and say, our leadership's going to be different. We are not going to uh, talk around, you know, go around talking about our superiority and conferring our civilization on others. What we're going to do is humbly, respectfully make it possible for everyone to go down this path. You know, the, the Neo-Confucian philosophers were not only talking about hierarchy. They were talking about fundamental issues of justice and uh, those uh, fundamental issues of justice, I think, are, are mm-hmm. eternal. All right. Man, that was very well said, very deep. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, like you're saying, you know, I guess I didn't really put it together. But this cultural shift from, you know, the West, everything being so good from the West. But right now we look at it, East Asia, Asia in general is leading in so many ways. So I guess... Oh, as Asian Americans, as Asians, what can we do to use that for good, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and for, for, for uh, our fellow Koreans, I just say, man, you know, I think <laughs> this amazing, amazing, you know, I, 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 every time I get on a treadmill, it's, you know, the reason I keep going is because I love watching these Netflix, uh, you know, uh, Korean dramas. <laughs> <laughs> Record of you, yeah. you know. <laughs> I'm sure they're all your friends, right, Eric? I keep thinking all these people must must be your friends, and I'm such a huge well, fan. Well, next time uh, I see all, anyone, I'll be like, Dr. Kim is a big fan, <laughs> and I'll point him to this podcast. Well, they, they, they have no idea who I am, but you know, uh, uh, Be Suji, mm-hmm. right? I I just watched her. Uh, the 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 themes are so mm-hmm. complex. They're so well done. Uh, you know, you, it's, I, I, I'm amazed at just the quality of the cultural production mm-hmm. coming out of Korea. Absolutely. It's amazing. Well, Dr. Kim, thank you again for your time. <laughs> You've been so generous with your time. Uh, so many insights, so many words of encouragement, new ways to think about things and approach life. So I think this hour or so of, of conversation will have people walking away with so much um, so thank you for your time and your wisdom. And um, please stay safe. Thank you, Eric. Let's do Absolutely. it again. Absolutely. Right? Hit me up whenever. <laughs> we can go karaoke. <laughs> Eric, 
Eric Nam, Eric Nam, we think you're dope. That should be that should be a session. We'll, we'll put we'll that together. We'll, we'll, we'll All right. hold on it. Thanks okay. so much. All Have right. a good one. Thanks, Eric. Bye. Good to see you. Bye bye.